Every one of us is guilty. And we know it, right? Like, we, we do lots to try to deny it. Lots to try to move on past it, move quickly past it, to not let the reality sink in or to affect us too much. We have all kinds of coping mechanisms. I'm, I'm convinced that much of what we experience society-wide in terms of fear and anxiety and depression is bound up with a latent awareness that we're guilty. So much of what we experience, even socially, in terms of fear of rejection, um, not, not being included, being not needed, being put out, not being loved, is bound up with this awareness, this subtle awareness somewhere in our being that we're not enough, that we don't measure up, that we're not lovable, that we're insufficient. Somewhere in us, we know that there are other people around us who have lived some kind of righteousness. Somewhere out there, there is a truth, a righteousness that we have not attained to. And this knowledge produces effects in us. I'm convinced this experience comes to us largely Because the voice of our God and Father still reverberates through all of creation and to the depths of our soul. The voice of our Father who told our very first human parents, sin brings death. We know that to be true. We know that death is coming. As much as we deny it, it's inevitable. We, we, we live with this reverberation of the voice of the Father who sent our first parents away. Remember what that death looked like? Yes, it led to physical death, but physical death wasn't the only thing that they had to deal with, right? What did the Father do? He sent them away from the garden. They were rejected. They were exiled. They were cut off relationally from the presence of the living God because of their sin. And we live, we live with this constant awareness that we too should be cut off, that our ultimate destiny on our own, based on our own merits and our own uncleanness, is that we too would be cut off and sent away. And, and so we have, like I said, we have all kinds of ways of trying to deal with it, right? Um, we can, as a society, turn against God and, and, and act like, well, then let's just act like God's the problem. He's the reason I feel condemned or he's the reason I fear death. And, and so we write God out of the equation, but then we have to live with the, the, the problem of who are we actually trying to please? And that becomes nebulous and you can't grab it, you can't hold it. There's no hope there. We write off God's law. We want to pretend like he's not righteous. We'll ignore his law. We'll come up with our own standard of righteousness. But is that really definite? Is that really certain? That, that just creates a, a more of this grasping for something. What righteousness is enough? What even is goodness and truth? And so the problem just gets compounded over and over. Because in reality, in the core of our beings, we know Every one of us is guilty. And, and here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 27, in this passage that we come to today, this is the problem that every one of the characters is confronted with, with the one exception of Jesus. Every one of them is guilty. 
Every one of them is guilty. This, the, kind of the framework is set in the first two verses, right? The chief priests and the elders, they gather together and they take counsel. And, and, and what's the image here? Is they're taking counsel and binding Jesus and sending him to Pilate. It's reminiscent of the language and the themes of Psalm 2, right? Where the nations rage and they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed to, to put him to death. All of them are in it together. They're, they're trying to give some kind of legitimacy to the proceedings because they understand that you're not supposed to carry out a trial in the middle of the night, especially, according to Jewish tradition, especially a capital offense. You're not supposed to try at night. So now in the morning, they get together and they, they come together and they take counsel again to reaffirm what they decided in the night. See, it's all legitimate, but they know it's not. They're conspiring all of them are guilty. It comes up in different ways. Judas, is, as you see just down in, in verse 4, Judas begins this whole process by coming into the temple and saying to them, look, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. What am I going to do about it? Then down towards the end of our passage, the same phrase is used. This time it's the religious leaders as they're asking for the death of Jesus. And Pilate washes his hands. He doesn't want to be guilty. And, and he says, this is your fault. <laughs> See to it yourselves. Pilate's trying to wash his hands of it. Judas is trying to wash his hands of it. The people are trying to rid themselves of their problem. Everyone has a problem. I mean, to some degree, some are more guilty, some are less guilty, some are more directly implicated, some by degrees. There's the crowds, there's Barabbas, and there's all kinds of role players in here, but they're all bound up in the guilt. And likewise, each of us, not to the same extent and not all of us in the same ways, but all of us are guilty, right? Because the God who created us in his image and likeness gave us a law, he gave us a standard. And all of us have fallen short of it. We've all loved and worshipped other things before him. We've, we've crafted idols. Maybe it's the picture of a perfect life that you just want to have and, and, and you set that up. Or maybe it's the, just one element of it, the perfect job or the perfect spouse. Whatever it is, you set something up before God. The, the peace that you would have if you could just attain this life. You set it up before God. You've loved him. You've, you've worshipped that instead of God. All of us have not honored father or mother. All of us have participated in lies instead of truth. We've pursued what's evil instead of what's good. We've marred the beauty of creation, beauty in other people through the consequences of our sin. All of us are guilty. The question this text is asking us is what are you going to do about it? There's an impulse in us to be innocent. We must be justified. But how? How can you be innocent? What are you going to do about your guilt? Here's one option the text gives to us. First one's this. You can despair over your guilt. <laughs> when you come to recognize your guilt, you can be honest about the severity of it, about how evil and wicked it actually is, and you can just despair over it. This is what we see again with Judas, verse 3. Then when Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, when he saw that, he was, that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Sometimes that happens, right? You, you choose a path of sin, and it seems pleasing to you. It seems like it's going to get you what you want in the moment. But then when you see the actual consequences, it's like, oh, no. 
He's, he's gripped by the consequences of his sin, and so he changes his mind. This isn't what I wanted. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, verse 4, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? Pause and consider. A guilty man walks into the temple of God where sacrifices for sin are made and the word of truth is supposed to be proclaimed. This man comes in saying, I've participated in a miscarrying of justice. And by the way, you have too because you've condemned him. I have sinned. What can be done for my sin? What can be done for the cause of truth? And they say, what's that got to do with us? We're priests in a temple. What do truth and justice and righteousness have to do with us? What does your guilt have to do with us? There's a profound irony in this text. They say to it, see to it yourself. They are the priests. They're highlighting a significant problem here. The system was broken. The religious system of the day was broken. It could not accomplish innocence or forgiveness for sins, particularly for someone in Judas's case, because here's the thing, even with the Old Testament code, there was no sacrifice for murderers. There was no allowance for redemption for him. What he needs is a different temple. He needs a different priest to intercede for him. He, he needs a new system. He needs a new sacrifice. So adding to the layers of irony here, the priests are actually speaking the truth. There is nothing they can do for Judas. Some of us, some of us still have the instinct of Judas to go back to religious patterns and religious ways to try to deal with what we are, I mean, we can be honest about our sin, right? And despair over it. We, we can be overwhelmed by the guilt of it, aware of the consequences, the ramifications of our sin, what it is we've actually done. If people only knew and our minds get caught up and spin and spin and spin. It's a real problem. Shakespeare, um, Shakespeare described this in, famously in, in Macbeth. When both Macbeth and his wife had participated in the murder of the king, um, the, the wife, Lady Macbeth, in, in, Acts, chapter two, in Acts chapter 5, or, sorry, in Acts 5, <laughs> I'm using Bible <laughs> references for Shakespeare. In Act 5, <laughs> Act 5, Lady Macbeth, who had previously condemned her husband for wrestling with guilt is spotted by some servants in the castle walking around in her sleep, tormented in her sleep, in her dreams, washing her hands. Oh, there's no water. She's walking around. She's washing her hands, trying to get the blood, the blood that she sees. The blood's long gone, but she still sees blood on her hands. And this is what she says. She says these words, famous line, out, damned, spot, out, I say. She tries to reason with herself, what need we fear? Who knows it when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? So much blood. 
the consequences, the guilt, the weight of her sin tormenting her even in her sleep. Of course, she wasn't the first. Her husband was the first one to go down this road and to look at his hands and to contemplate the blood on his hands. Macbeth in Act 2 said this, He said, what hands are here? Ha, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine making the green one red. You catch that image? He says, I could go, I could take these hands to the ocean and try to wash my hands in the ocean, but my hands would not be clean. The ocean would turn red before my hands would be clean. There's no water. There is no water that can cleanse this guilt. They are despairing of what they have done. Why are those lines famous? Why can Shakespeare write about that and that resonates? Because this is all of our problem. So we try to do whatever comes to mind. It's the the washing of hands Physically, it's the cleaning up of your life religiously. It's the, dumb, the, the dumbing of the noise by surrounding yourself with social media or TV or pain medication or drinking or gambling or eating. We try to null it and dumb it because we're despairing of the guilt that we know is there. Judas, overwhelmed by the guilt, goes and does the only thing he has left to do because if I can't make myself clean, there's no hope. Or so he thinks. And so he goes and kills himself. Friends, there are are many in this room whose lives have been touched by suicide in any number of different ways. I want to comment just very briefly to say simply this. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Judas doesn't go to hell because he commits suicide. Judas goes to hell because he doesn't turn to Jesus. Judas, there's a very interesting word that Matthew uses here to describe what Judas does, because in in one sense, you can feel sorry for him. Look, he he changed his mind. He was trying to make things right. Why wasn't there grace for him? And in reality, the word here is a different word. It's not the word for repent. Repent. It's, it's one thing to change your mind and regret what you did. It's another thing to change your allegiance and follow Jesus. To confess your sin and move on from the despair. See, here, here's the thing. The thing that, that moves in us, those of us who struggle with suicidal impulses, often if it's related to religious causes like this, an awareness of our guilt is that we spend so much time looking at our sin and we never stop to look at our Savior. And, and, and here's the problem. If, if we're on a path, we can rightly identify our sin and our guilt and the path is leading us off a cliff. It's leading us towards death. What Judas is doing is he's looking back the other way and saying, yeah, that was the right way, but he just keeps walking the path to death. What repentance calls us to do is to turn and to walk in the path of Jesus where there is forgiveness and life and hope. But Judas doesn't turn. He's right about his guilt. It is overwhelming and there is nothing he can do. But his solution is woefully inadequate. This approach to trying to find innocence, it looks at Jesus' death and it says, Jesus' death won't do me any good. 
It's hopeless. It does not accomplish innocence. Here's a second thing, a second option. You can try to deal with your guilt, try to accomplish your innocence. How? You can declare your innocence. Just, just declare it. I'm innocent. Verse 4, this is what the religious leaders did, right? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Ah, you've, you've done the blood money thing, not us. <laughs> That's your problem. We're good. There's, there's again, there's so much irony happening here. They are the ones who paid it to him, but now they're like, oh, we're too holy to touch it. So Judas responds. He throws down the piece of silver in the temple. He goes out and hangs himself. Verse 6, the chief priests take the pieces of silver. It's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. The religious hypocrisy is supposed to be appalling. It's supposed to be astounding here. So they take counsel together, and they, and they go, and they buy the, this land as a burial field for strangers, a potter's field. Um, probably it was a well-known place uh, where the potters, you know, just piecing things together historically outside the town where potters would have gone to collect clay. And probably it was spent. That's why the land had come up for sale. And they need a burial place for strangers because you can't put the unclean with the clean. You can't put the unclean with Jewish people, um, so they, they go and they buy this land. They're trying to do more religious things with it to try to keep themselves and the people pure. Um, this is fulfilling what Matthew says, the prophecy of Jeremiah. Really, it's a, it's a fusing of a number of different prophecies from Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19, and, and Zechariah chapter 11 as well. A number of different stories, thematic parallels coming into focus here, as well as language that's borrowed from these prophets. It's really complicated, but basically what's going on is this. In these narratives, we read about Israel finally and ultimately rejecting Yahweh's shepherd. They value his him little at the price of a slave. The money in the narrative uh, in the Old Testament is given to the potter specifically. And why that's important is because there's a potter uh, who was presumably stationed near the temple. Now potters, significantly, could make pots for use for the vessels in the temple. They also were the ones who worked with metal who would make the idols that were then used to pollute God's temple. So in, in both of the narratives, Yahweh's shepherd is rejected. He's valued at the price of a slave. The money is used to purchase something that actually symbolizes the pollution of God's people and their impending judgment. It's intense. They're living it out and they don't even know it. The point simply is this. The religious leaders are putting their hypocrisy on display. They're moving on from their guilt as if they're just untouched. We're innocent. The filth hasn't touched us. Let's move on. It's, um, you know, every, every time I hear the word declare now, I think of this scene from The Office. Like, if, you, if you've seen The Office TV show, you remember the, the one character, Michael Scott, he's a manager in The Office. He's having all kinds of financial problems, and someone told him he should declare bankruptcy. So he just, like, walks into the middle of the office and says, I declare bankruptcy. And then the next scene, he's, like, cutting up his credit cards and his bank cards. And, and the accountant comes in to try to graciously explain to him, you can't just say you're bankrupt and then, like, expect that to do anything. And he says, I didn't say it. I declared it. And it's ridiculous. And it's equally ridiculous here to declare your righteousness, to declare your innocence. It doesn't do anything. Nothing's changed just because you say it. Same thing's true of Pilate. He tries the same approach. Look at verse 24. 
Pilate realizes things are going against him at the trial. Jesus, he's, he's going to have to give Jesus over to the crucifixion. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I'm declaring my innocence. I'm even giving you a graphic picture to show how righteous I am. I am washing my hands of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Which is, again, it's ironic that he uses the same phrase to them that they used to Judas. But there's, there's, there's so many things happening here. The, the text of Scripture is marvelous. The, the one who's supposedly the governor, uh, he's, he's lost control. The, the one who's fighting for power, who's supposedly, you know, symbolizing Rome, oppressing God's people, is totally controlled by the Israelites. The one who wants everyone to think he's great is being manipulated like a pawn. The one who's sitting on the judgment seat is not getting his judgment executed at all. He makes a show of washing his hands. Look, look how innocent I am. You know anyone like that? I mean, we got a whole world, got a whole generation, right? generation of leaders who cannot stop apologizing for everyone else's sins. Oh, that's great, right? Because it makes them look so righteous. Look, I'm apologizing. And, and, and look, by apologizing for previous generation's sins, I'm also saying that I'm better than that previous generation. So you're just setting yourself up as more and more righteous. But lest we cast the first stone, we need to realize this, this encapsulates the way a lot of us live, actually. Where we decry the injustice of slavery and of child labor. And we still wear clothes that we're pretty sure we know where they came from. We, uh, we move right on with cries for justice for the oppressed. Um, While we're still as a society totally obsessed with pornography, that results in the trafficking of countless women and children. And we just move on, move on, keep moving. Declare we're better than the previous generations because we're sexually liberated. We declare our righteousness in all kinds of ways, in our activism, in our environmentalism, in the way that I parent, in the way that I school, in the way that I live as a neighbor, in the way that I serve my church. There's all kinds of ways to just keep moving on, keep moving on, show everyone I'm innocent, show everyone I'm righteous, without ever actually doing business with the reality of the guilt within. Declaring your innocence, putting it on display, it doesn't actually do anything. This response, this approach to Jesus' death, says Jesus' death, it's for other people. They need it. It's on them. But it does not accomplish our innocence. It does not deal with our guilt. There's, there's a third approach, a third way to try to deal with our guilt that this text offers us here. It's this. You can just defy your judge. Just defy him. <laughs> Speak against him. Stand against him. Overthrow him. Whatever it takes. Look at verse 20. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? 
And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more. This is the way sin works, right? Like, if, if, you're just, if you're just sinning and you're mad or you're like just passionate about it and you want to get your way and someone tries to speak reason to you in the moment, what does it do? It just inflames it all the more. So he's like, well, hold on. Let's reason together. Why are we doing this? Just do it. Just crucify him. Well, what about the guilt for it? Verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. If we kill the king, how's he going to judge us? In, in a lot of parts of the world, this kind of stuff still happens. I, I was reading about a case a number of years ago, even, even just in Mexico, and the, the, the judge in the middle of the trial, a criminal trial for this crime boss, the judge was just killed. Everyone knew who did it. But just, well, you, can't, you can't find this guy. It's, let's just take out the judge. This describes so much of the pride of our age. We just, we'll just defy the judge. Defy the judgment. The only thing we know how to blush at is the notion that sin exists. We want to do away with God and all that shameful talk about sin. There's so much animosity towards Christianity, to, to the old-fashioned religion. I, I don't know if this describes any of you here. This animosity towards God, towards the one who sits on the judgment throne, towards the one who commands you and will judge you. But it might. I think, I think this is especially common in homes where kids grow up feeling like, rightly or wrongly, their parents have oppressed them with religion, haven't given them freedom to do what they want to do. I could just be myself. I could just be happy. If my, if, if my parents would just let me, if, if there was no God, if I could just overthrow all of it and go my own way, Almost a daring of God himself. What are, you, what are you gonna do? I defy you. From the beginning of time, this has been the attitude of, of humanity, right? This contending for supremacy with God. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, look, God, he, he just doesn't want you to be like him, but you can be like him. You can be supreme. You can know good and evil. God's holding back the good from you. Defy him, go against him, work against him. It doesn't, it doesn't work. I, I've quoted this poem before. I, I find it so intriguing and haunting. Dylan Thomas, a, a Welsh poet, wrote the poem, Do Not Go Gentle. Some of you know it. Do not go gentle into that good night. The last refrain, he, he's, he's reflecting on the experience of People on their deathbeds, facing death. How do different people approach the last night of their death, the last night of their life as they lay dying? And in the final stanza, it becomes clear that he is approaching this night with his father in view. His father is the one who's dying. And so he writes this in the final stanza. He says, And you, my father, there on the sad height, 
Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What's he saying? He's saying, bless me by cursing death and fighting against it. Fight, rage, fight against the dying of the light. Don't go there, don't die. But here's the agony of the poem as he acknowledges you can't win. You can fight all you want against death, but in the end it comes. And similarly, friend, you can fight as hard as you want against the creator and judge of the universe. But he's unstoppable. He is immovable. He is forever true. The one that you sin against, the judge is the one in just a few days who's going to rise from the dead. Even if you could kill him, go ahead, kill him. He conquers death. You can defy this judge, but there is no escaping. This approach says, it looks at Jesus' death, and it says, Jesus' death is good. It's good, because now I won't be judged. But friend, that does not accomplish your innocence. There's one final approach that's given to us in this passage. How can we be cleared? How can we be innocent? The king can die in your place. There's there's one one character in this story who no one's even going to try to like wash his hands or pretend he's innocent, right? It's Barabbas. He's a sinner through and through. What's his role in the story? Well, nothing in one sense. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't speak. He doesn't act. He's not even physically present in this part of the narrative through any of it. So why is he here? He's here as a foil character, as a contrast over against Jesus. Verse 15 now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. This is, this is a really neat thing. So um, Pilate, to try to please the people so that they don't riot or revolt during the feast, has this tradition that now has become the occasion for the crowd almost rioting and revolting. The, the vanity of humanity trying to govern the world's affairs. Verse 16, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. The word notorious, it sounds, um, it sounds like he's universally thought of as bad, but, but here's the bigger picture. Barabbas, is, his name uh, means son of the father. Uh, he was probably the son of someone famous, uh, maybe even a, a rabbi. Um, but he has been associated with the insurrection, with the rebellion against Rome. And, and so he has been associated with theft and with murder and with violence. So if you can somehow imagine in your head a scene where there is looting and robbery and violence and murder and chaos. I don't know, we've seen a little bit of that lately. Barabbas is the guy that's stirring that up. He's a terrorist. But here's the thing, if you're terrorizing Rome, you're kind of a good guy to a lot of Jews. Because this is what we need. We need a savior who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to stand up against the military powers, against the governmental authorities, because this is how God's kingdom is going to come, through earthly means of rebellion and revolt. 
And, and so this, this whole scene is set up simply this way. The, the crowd that's come this morning, nobody, they, they didn't know that Jesus had been arrested and that Jesus of Nazareth was going to be here, offered to them to be released this morning. This crowd gathered specifically because they had come knowing Pilate's tradition. They had come already to ask for Barabbas. That was why they were there. That was why they were there so early in the morning. That was their goal with the morning. The, the only hesitation here when Pilate begins to ask is because now Pilate's offered them a new option. They knew the three criminals. Now there's a fourth criminal. And wait, what do we think about Jesus anyway? He's kind of popular. He's done all kinds of cool things. Should we let him go? But now the chief priests and the elders are going throughout the crowd and they're telling them about Jesus' blasphemy. And the people that are there in support of Barabbas are already people representative of the nation of Israel who had put their hopes on physical and military and political deliverance. And so the choice that's being set before them here really is, do we want Barabbas who can bring military might or do we want Jesus who told us to love our enemies and told us that the kingdom of heaven that's coming comes from heaven down to earth. It comes... It's, 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 un, it's not impressive. It's a little mustard seed. It's, it's, it's like a farmer who just sows seed and then watches it grow. It's like a little bit of leaven. What kind of kingdom do they want? How do they expect it to come? So they gather, verse 17, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ. He knew. He knew it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he's sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. She tells him about this dream that testifies to Jesus' innocence. You know, there were like five dreams at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, but they were all obeyed. This one, God's revelation is ignored. So the chief priests keep insisting, verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two, understand the picture here, one of them, must die. And one will go free. Which of the two? And they call for Barabbas. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? Let him be crucified. Look at the results. Verse 26. He released for them Barabbas. One goes free. In this entire narrative, only one goes free. And it's the one whose place Jesus took. He's released, and having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. Scourging is, is vicious. Scourging is, uh, he would be tied to a pole with his arms wrapped around it, and then they would whip his back, and it would have all kinds of basically uh, straps on the whip, and there would be pieces of uh, sharp bone or pottery tied onto the ends of the strap, so that as you whip him, it essentially grabs onto his flesh and then rips it right off of him. It would open him right up. Um, often exposing bones, um, organs. Everything internal is now visible externally. It was the type of punishment that the Jews had restrictions on. They could only do it up to 40 lashes because any more than that, the guy would certainly die and the Jews weren't allowed to execute someone. But the Romans, they didn't have any limit. The only limit on how far you could scourge someone was however much strength you had or however much fun you were having. And so you can go on. We can go on and read the accounts of how much fun they were having. They, they scourged Jesus. Um, it was common for those who were scourged in this way to simply die from the scourging even before they ever got to another method of execution. 
Jesus is torn open and delivered to be crucified. The fate is finally sealed. There is no looking back. Uh, Understand this about this scene. That morning, there were prepared three crosses because there were three criminals. Barabbas woke up that morning expecting that the cross was for him. The only reason there was a cross for Jesus is because there needed to be a cross for someone else. Everyone in this narrative is guilty except for Christ who's innocent. The only way to find ourselves innocent is if the innocent one dies in our place. This this approach, it looks at Jesus' death and it says simply this, Jesus' death is for me. This accomplishes innocence and freedom. There was a cross also for you. The question for you is, do you let Jesus take it? The judgment was prepared. Your appointment before the judgment throne of God on high has been prepared. Who will stand on that day? Him or you? Who will pay the price? For the Christian, if you contemplate this, friend, listen, this gives you great joy This gives you great freedom and peace. It gives you peace with your past. (laughs) The peace that Judas couldn't have tormented over what he'd done. All of it was taken by the one who died in our place. It gives us consolation in our present struggles. Nothing that even happens in this moment now, none of my failures will stand against me on that day because Christ actually died in my place and took my punishment. There is peace, there is consolation, there is joy, there is deep appreciation for Christ this Easter, friend, if we contemplate the fact that he took the cross for us. As we consider Jesus' death for us, it gives us great peace as we prepare for our death, and it enables us to be truly ready to live in the freedom of the resurrection, knowing that the price has been fully paid. For the guilty, if you come in this morning not knowing where you are at with Jesus, or if you've known that historically you have been hostile to him or you haven't cared about him, you have not bent the knee to Jesus as king, but you know that you are guilty, then let me offer to you this same peace that comes with knowing you are innocent and clean. None of the hand-washing, none of the blame-shifting, none of the denial, and none of the despair will ever cure you of guilt and shame. But trusting in Jesus, who suffered and died in your place, prepares your soul to meet your maker and gives you peace with your fellow humans. You might be plagued by guilt, 
by shame, by fear, by anxiety, by worry about what that day, that judgment day will hold. All of that can change in a moment. Before you walk out of this room, you can know that you are innocent and have peace with Almighty God. If you trust in Jesus, who died in your place. This is the amazing offer of innocence that our king gives to us. We are all guilty, but there is no need to despair. There's no need to declare our own righteousness, to work for it. There's no need to defy our king or our judge anymore because he has died in our place. I'll ask you to please pray with me.